When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. This episode of The Vault is from November 17, 2012, when the Institute held a day-long symposium in which playwrights, poets, scientists, philosophers, artists, and activists discussed the phenomenon of solitary confinement. Titled, Should You Ever Happen to Find Yourself in Solitary, Wry Fancies and Stark Realities, the event was the brainchild of Lawrence Weschler, the Institute's director. This installment features Joshua Foyer, a science writer and the 2006 USA Memory Champion. Foyer describes the experience in his 2011 book, Moonwalking with Einstein, the art and science of remembering everything. We also hear from Stuart Firestein, the chair of the Department of Biological Sciences at Columbia University. Joshua Foer, at one point, was the U.S. memory champion. At some point in, I think it was either late 2006 or early 2007, I don't actually remember exactly when, I had the privilege of spending a day with a woman who is known in the medical literature as AJ. And she was the first person ever diagnosed with uh, this newly identified condition called hyperthymestic syndrome, superior autobiographical memory. She could remember something, not everything, but at least one thing that occurred on every day of her life since childhood. Now, Human memory is not supposed to work like this. Most of us forget most of our lives as fast as we lead them. And the question for neuroscientists was, how do we explain this extraordinary woman? How do we explain her extraordinary memory? And what is the difference between her and the rest of us? Or is there one? So until relatively recently, most psychologists actually believed that we hold in our minds, in our memories, a perfect recording of everything that's ever happened to us. Every smell we encounter, every feeling, every touch, every word we utter gets stored away in our cerebral attic. And if we can't find those memories, it's simply because we've, we've lost the key to the filing cabinet, not because those memories have actually been erased. This misguided belief, which I don't think 
most psychologists now subscribe to, basically goes back to an experiment that was conducted, a set of experiments from the 1930s to the 1950s by a Canadian neurosurgeon named Wilder Penfield. And he was operating on epileptic patients, trying to identify the source of their epilepsy. He had their skulls open on the operating table while they were still awake. And he would touch different parts of their brain with an electrical probe. And he found that when he would touch areas of the temporal lobe in particular, he would elicit what seemed like long forgotten memories. People talking about trading desserts during lunchtime in second grade, that sort of thing. And when he would touch that same part of the brain, he would get the same memory elicited. So people came to believe that perhaps he was you know, accessing these long forgotten memories. In the 1980s, the early 1980s, a Dutch psychiatrist named Willem Wagner conducted a kind of incredible experiment. He spent six years trying to record in detail his entire life. So every day, at the end of the day, he'd take a set of index cards and write down every salient thing that had happened to him on that day, who he had been with, where he had been, what exactly had transpired. And at the end of those six years, he went back and wanted to see how much of his life he had in fact remembered. And what he found was that of the more recent events, he remembered just about everything. And as he went farther back in time, he remembered less and less. And of those events that happened in the first year of the experiment, he remembered about 80%. But here's what's really amazing. He took the index cards from the events that he couldn't remember, and he went back to the people who were listed on those cards as having been present at those events. And he said to them, help me out. Give me something that you remember from that event, and let's see if it cues my memory. And he found that, in fact, with the right set of cues, he was able to remember every single event that had happened to him on those cards. Now, we don't know how much of our lives we are actually capable of remembering. Nobody's ever performed that experiment of trying to recall their entire lives. Nobody's ever performed the experiment because if you were going to do it, if you were going to try and remember everything that happened from your first memory to the present moment, it would consume the rest of your life from the present moment onward. It's an experiment nobody could ever possibly conduct unless perhaps you found yourself confined to solitary confinement. And so I think that's what I would spend my time in solitary confinement doing, trying to figure out exactly how much of my life I could remember. And I thought about how I might do this. And what I think I would do is I'd start with a, a set of index cards like that Dutch psychologist and simply try and spill out as many memories as I could. Probably have to empty out an entire staples to have enough uh, index cards. And I think over time, that process would stop bearing fruit, and so I would move on to stage two. Now, we know that our memories are associational by nature, that we can go from the Milky Way to milk to white to berry white. That's a short neurological jump. So what I would do is I'd start taking the index cards of the things that I had remembered, and I'd start using them to cue myself. Okay, here's my memory of my fifth birthday party at Putt-Putt in Rockville, Maryland, and I remember that Chloe Thompson was there. And I remember now that in fifth grade, I kissed Chloe Thompson in a game of spin the bottle, and that was at Nick Sadowski's house. And Nick Sadowski ended up going to the Naval Academy, and now I remember a trip to Annapolis and so on and so forth. And I think I could spend a few more years using that process to help dredge up more memories, throwing these fishing hooks into my memory and seeing what I can pull back out. And I think eventually I would exhaust that process, and I'd move on to step three, when I would start asking the guard on the other side of the door for random words bourbon, sunglasses, necktie. And I'd start using those to go fishing again. I think I'd end up with this big stack of index cards, and I'd probably like to start then 
putting them in, in um, chronological order and overlaying the structure of the calendar on top of them and seeing if maybe I can fill in every day of my life. It's a kind of quixotic dream. Now, turns out AJ, after she came to light, we discovered about two dozen other people who had this extraordinary condition, hyperthymistic syndrome. When scientists went and started looking at what these people all had in common, they found basically one thing, one trait that they all shared. And that is, they all had to some degree or another obsessive compulsive disorder. And I saw this very clearly when I got a chance to spend time with AJ. It turns out she is an obsessive diarist. She writes in the tiniest little handwriting on a calendar everything that happened to her every day. She goes online, she prints out the weather every morning, and then files them away, those printouts in binders that, that line, her, line her house. And every morning when she wakes up, when she's blow drying her hair, she thinks back on what she did on that day a year ago, on what she did on that day two years ago, on that day three years ago, four years ago. She's constantly revising her life in her memory. And what this suggests is that perhaps what's extraordinary about this woman is not her memory but rather this compulsion to remember. And I think if I were to find myself in solitary confinement, I suspect it would confirm the old truism that the only life we live is the life that we remember. And if that's true, then that raises a question. I mean, of all the things that you could be obsessive about trying to hold on to, trying to remember your own life is maybe not the craziest thing. Perhaps it's not AJ who is mad, but the rest of us. Thank you. Of course, one of the problems with being in solitary is they don't give you index cards. Oh, that kind of solitary. Shoot. <laughs> um. And I also wonder to what extent what you're talking about is what, whether you're remembering your life or you're remembering what you remember remembering or whether you... Sure. I mean, we, we know that I would be filling those index cards with false memories. Because, you know, every time we reactivate a memory, we don't just dredge it up, pull it out of a safety deposit box and look at it and then put it back in. We, we pull it back up in the light of who we are at that moment. And who we are at that moment when we're recalling that memory is different than we were at the last time we recalled that memory. And the memory takes on a new inflection based on who we are at that moment. Mm -hmm. And so we're changing. Our, our memories are constantly mutating as we ourselves are constantly mutating. It's interesting because I was thinking that something that you might do if you were in solitary would be memory exercises or something. Is that a thing that you could do to try? Again, you're trying to keep from going crazy. The guy who is kind of the main character of my book and who was my, my coach mm -hmm. took me under, under his wings and taught me all these ancient memory tricks. He said that to me at one point that he would like to be the kind of person who could spend 10 years in solitary confinement. Those were his actual words without going crazy because... He has stocked away so much good stuff in his memory, so many poems, so many great stories, that he could sit there with his eyes closed and reread the Iliad, which he had, in fact, memorized, or Paradise Lost, which he had, in fact, memorized. He's spending his whole life prepping for solitary confinement. Let's keep going. Could you, in a white room, do tricks to memory gymnastics, you know, set yourself challenges. Yeah, but what would your input be? What would you be memorizing? Well, that's the question. So what could you do? In, in a, again, I'm trying to push you on, on right. this fantasy. You just got arrested. Yeah. And there you are, you of all people, uh -huh. who do have these techniques. Yeah. Well, I suppose we could ask the, uh, ask the whisper to the guard, 
and ask him for, for things to, to remember and, and commit those to memory. And or you could whisper to yourself. I mean, you could. I suppose could, that's true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what I was doing, what I was talking about doing just now right. was a kind of retrospective memory as opposed to what right, I think right, you're right, asking right, me. Right, right, right. Could you try to remember Hamlet's soliloquy? Assuming that at some point you've read it. Right. Would your mm -hmm. memory tricks be able to help you dredge it out of your head or, or I not? I don't think so. I think it's gone. That's, that's actually my honest belief. I think I've forgotten most of what I've Penfield could not push, push little buttons in your head and make Well, you what know? Penfield was actually a listening was more like hallucinations than authentic huh. memories. That, I think, is what we would now say. Something more like deja vu than actual long-lost memories. Huh. So huh. I'm skeptical that I'd be able to pull back Hamlet. So that's interesting. So, so that, in other words, what you're saying about the memory is that even though you've read it twice and it is there somewhere, when you say it's gone, it's gone. Yeah, well, we now know that forgetting is something that happens at the cellular level in the brain. Forgetting is real. It's not simply the case that we lost access to the, to the filing cabinet. Some of the files have actually disappeared. And thank God they have, otherwise there wouldn't be room for anything else. Otherwise, we would be, we would be crazy, which is one interpretation of, of AJ's condition. Um, I mean, there's really good reasons why we forget and why we don't remember everything that happens to us. So the main reason we don't remember things is because we're not paying attention. And I think that if you can keep that thought in mind, that I'm going to be the kind of person who is constantly reminding myself to remember, remembering to remember, that's a good way to move through the world. And it's a good way to have a more memorable life, but also to be more present. And that in itself, talking about presence in solitary, that would be a, a conundrum right there. How do you remember what's happening day to day when nothing's happening day to day? I had an opportunity to interview a guy named Michel Siff, who is a French chronobiologist, guy who studies the science of, of time and its effect on, on organisms. And he conducted one of the most extraordinary self-experiments in the history of science. He had himself lowered into a cave he did this actually on a several occasions. He had himself lowered into a cave for I think it was like six months without access to light, no access to a calendar, no watch. And he wanted to know what this would do to his sense of time. What happened, what he found very quickly, was that his memory was the first thing to go. Without the day to structure his life, it became impossible to remember what had happened a day ago, what had happened a month ago. He also found that his sense of time's passage dramatically changed. There was some date when he was called, called down from the surface, experiments up, time to come upstairs. He had been keeping a diary, and what he found when he went up to ground level was he had thought it was, you know, whatever, August 12th. In fact, it was October 18th. His sense of time's passing had collapsed by a dramatic factor, and I think that is something that would happen to anybody in solitary confinement without all that input, right? It is our memories that structure our experience of time's passage. And the more of those landmarks, the more of those chronological landmarks we're able to, to have in our life, the more slowly time seems to pass. And that is a pretty good case for not living the kind of life that is day-to-day -day exactly the same thing happening to you over and over again. You're sitting in a cubicle, you're doing the same thing every... You should be taking vacations. You should be going and doing exciting things and having new experiences, not just because those are worthwhile things to do, but because the more you can pack your life with those kinds of chronological landmarks that we use to reference ourselves in relation to the passage of time, 
the longer our lives will actually subjectively feel. I mean, it's interesting that uh, we talk about wasting our lives, but it's worth in this context saying that as a body politic, we are laying waste to the lives of 80,000 people right now. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> the first section was kind of poets and playwrights and memory people. This next section, I want to start with Stuart Firestein, who is here from, he's the head of biology at Columbia, but he also has, I asked him what he would do in solitary, and here he is to tell it. Ren asked me to do this a, a couple of weeks ago, and of course, my first response is, I think, many people's first responses to the idea of solitary is they mix it up, I think, with solitude, with notions of solitude, which have a much nicer connotation. So the first thing, if you're a busy person sort of thing and uh, too much in the world, as it were, is that you think, oh, solitary. Well, that might be nice for a little while. I, maybe I'll get, you know, the cell phone will stop ringing off and the emails will stop pinging and so forth. But then I realized that I regularly catch myself in the urinal checking my email. So really, how much do I want to be away from this email? I've even given up the toilet as a solitary place. Um, and I think many of us do this as well. So really, maybe this idea is not quite so positive as we might at first think. To maybe reinforce that a little bit, I, I, not intentionally, I, I went online to a few of these sort of quote sites, you know, brainy quotes or fascinating quotes or this, that. So I figured I'd find some interesting quote about solitary or even solitude, perhaps, that would be interesting to use. And what's remarkable is that I found that every one of the quotes is very positive. They're all in this kind of Ralph Waldo Emerson kind of idea of solitary. Uh, the rugged individual, the solitary man, the this, the that. But, but I couldn't find a negative quote about solitary, which I found sort of surprising. So I think this is maybe a, a kind of a mindset that we have that's, that's interesting to think about, at least. My uh, remit here today is to talk about the neuroscience of solitary, which we don't know much, but I'll tell you a little bit of what we do know. Uh, it's not my field in particular, but I know people who work in it, and I know some of the literature about it as well. Certainly, one of the hotter areas of neuroscience now is evolutionary psychology and cognitive neuroscience areas that have been ignored for years, are very uh, strong now. And one of the clear findings, I think, from this work is that there's every indication that the significant expansion of the human brain, the size of the brain that we have, and its evolution into this size is highly dependent upon the fact that we became at some point a highly social, highly communicative animal and that vast amounts of brain space are used to read social cues, to be social, to talk, of course, which is a social activity, and to participate in all these things, and that we find them rewarding as well. That being social is rewarding, that flirting is one of the more rewarding behaviors we do, it turns out, that assembling like this, let's remember that assembling is guaranteed to us by the framers of the Constitution, so the notion of being together in a, in a group and the possibility of doing so, so these are all rather rewarding kinds of things. And, and we, in fact, I could give you some spiel about dopamine flooding the brain when we do this and all that, but it's not so important, I think, at this point, except to recognize that we understand sociality and communication and being, in pe being with people as being highly rewarding. Of course, if it's rewarding, then withdrawing it is likely to be punishing. And I think this is clearly something that's been recognized for centuries by jailers and wardens, even by societies as a whole with things like ostracism and the effects that this can have on an individual personality.
So clearly it's, it's used purely as punishment in that sense. There's an interesting history, I suppose, in neuroscience of studies of solitary or sociality, beginning with, I think, something that, that we all call the forbidden experiment. The forbidden experiment actually grew up in the linguistic area. There was the idea that are we born with language? Do we have some innate kind of language thing in us? Or do we learn it? Or are we acculturated by it? The whole nature versus nurture idea of things, which may be a false dichotomy, but nonetheless is driven driven scientific inquiry and behavior and in in neuroscience for quite some time. And so the idea of the forbidden experiment, of course, is what if you took a child from birth and raised it in a deprived condition, raised it in solitude with no human contact, with minimal sensory input, what would this child have when you finally decided to test this child at 14, 15 years of age, would they be able to speak? Would they have any cultural abilities? Would they be able to see faces, understand friendly versus non-friendly? All of these things that we kind of take for granted, but we don't know whether they're innate or whether they're culture or which part of them is which or how much is which. As is the case with every forbidden experiment, it's almost surely been done, if not published. And there are cases of it where it's been done maybe on purpose or maybe accidentally. Historically, the most famous one, I guess, is that of Caspar Hauser. Herzog made a film of the story, and it's a reasonably well-documented story of a young boy found in the town square of Nuremberg in the mid-1800s with a note pinned to him asking him to please take care of him. And eventually he learned rudimentary language and some social skills, but he was always not quite right, as you might imagine. And it came out that he'd been raised in some sort of a basement somewhere, that he never saw another human being, that food appeared when he was asleep, they would occasionally cut his hair, but that was it. And he had a couple of toys around and, and no more. And of course, he grew up to be quite damaged as a personality. The story gets a little more bizarre in the end as he was murdered for some unknown reason somewhat later in life. A more recent case, this was the case of uh, Jeannie, the young girl in Southern California that was written up by Russ Reimer. First as a New Yorker article and appears now as a book, which I recommend highly. It's quite fascinating. Uh, Jeannie was brought up in these deplorable conditions of of, uh, having no contact and so forth and was damaged as a personality through the rest of her life. There are animal experiments that have gone on in this area, the most famous or infamous being those of Harry Harlow and the rhesus monkeys, in which young monkeys were raised without a mother, but just given a sort of a a wire frame version of another monkey. And these monkeys are damaged for life by having this kind of rearing condition. We don't even do those experiments on animals anymore, let alone on people. Of course, These were developmental experiments, and so we know that solitary conditions in a developing brain are disastrous and produce lifelong personality deficits, as well as all sorts of other deficits. I think we're less clear what happens to them in the adult brain. It's harder to understand this. Of course, one can't do experiments, even though we, in some unofficial way, are doing experiments by keeping people in solitary confinement. But clearly, it's damaging, and it remains damaging in the same way that post-traumatic stress syndrome does. And there are things that you would never be able to get over. The brain changes. It remains plastic throughout life. We should remember that the brain doesn't stop developing at birth, but develops at least through your mid-20s, maybe a little bit longer. And then it begins developing probably in the other way. I mean, as it goes downhill as you <laughs> pass that age. But in any case, it remains plastic throughout your life. And so clearly there must be effects, especially on a prison population that's primarily younger, often in precisely that crucial developmental time point for brain in the late teens and early 20s, all the way through, say, 30 years of age. 
Other experiments that have gone on in neuroscience, of course, are sensory deprivation, made, I guess, originally famous by John Lilly in the 1960s as sensory deprivation tanks in which people would go into a tank of uh, body temperature water suspended in the uh, high salt content. So you were suspended, it felt gravity free, there was no light, there was no sound and so forth. And of course, people would begin to hallucinate almost immediately become highly hallucinatory. These were the same people that were screwing around with LSD and the like, so it wasn't necessarily considered a negative, but it clearly would be over a longer period of time. This notion that it becomes hallucinatory is quite interesting. I personally believe, and I'm I'm not quoting any particular research because I don't know any done in this area, but I believe we'll begin to find that the kind of hallucinations that you have mentally in a solitary or solitude sort of place are not so different in the end from that of uh, phantom limbs. So I'm sure you're all familiar with situations where somebody loses an arm or something like that, but they continue to feel the arms being there, often being twisted or moved in funny positions. And this is generally believed to be because the brain, of course, expects input from the nerves in the arm, and when it doesn't get it, it makes it up. So it essentially hallucinates an arm that's not there. Interestingly, almost all phantom limb type hallucinations are painful. Why that has to be, I'm not clear on, of course, but the brain generally, it seems, interprets inappropriate signals as being painful. This would somehow or another make, I guess, sense, but only in a post hoc kind of way. So it wouldn't be surprising then that the kind of hallucinations, mental hallucinations, psychic hallucinations that could develop out of solitary would be painful in that psychic kind of way as well. I believe that there would be a connection there, or one, a connection worth at least sort of uh, looking for. Another kind of solitary that shows up in neuroscience or neurology is something called locked-in syndrome. This is a, a rare but devastating pathology of the brain in which usually due to some sort of a massive stroke or occasionally an injury or a, a, a progressive debilitating disease, a person becomes more and more, as it were, locked into their head. That is, they lose all ability to control their muscles. They have no behavior, but they're there in their head. There's no cognitive deficit, particularly. They can't do anything except maybe blink an eye. For example, a recent example of this was the butterfly in the diving mm-hmm. belt. And he managed to write the book, of course, but literally by blinking one eye, that's all he had left. But there was a mind in there, and yet he was in some ways completely cut off I was at a meeting recently where Stephen Hawking was there, the great physicist, and he's very, very close to being in this situation. So over the years, this progressive, some form of ALS that he seems to have, although it's not clear what the actual disease is, continues to progress to the point where he really can do very little but move his cheek. And so he has a sensor on his cheek that kind of runs a computer, but he knows that's on its way out as well and will be locked in. And he's otherwise completely mentally healthy. He's very open about the fear of this happening, finally, of his being locked in. Let me sort of finish this with an unscientific, that, that is, it was, a, it was a survey, not done scientifically, but a survey that was done by one of the National Institutes of Health, the NIDCD. This is the National Institute of Deafness and Other Communicative Disorders. I happen to know about this survey in a quirky kind of way because the National Institutes of Health, which funds most scientific research, uh, biological life sciences research, and most neuroscience research in this country is organized around diseases because we all think we should be paying for them to cure diseases. In point of fact, they support a great deal of basic fundamental research as well. But nonetheless, the institutes are all named after diseases. So there's the National Eye Institute, National Cancer Institute, et cetera, et cetera. 
And my laboratory, it so happens, works on the olfactory system. The sense of smell is a kind of a window onto the brain and its functions. And so we're covered by an institute called the National Institute on Deafness and Other Communicative Disorders, which covers all the other sensory systems except the eyes, because vision has its own institute. But of course, we call it deafness because that's the one with the greatest pathology. There's not much pathology, serious pathology associated with loss of your sense of smell. So in any case, these institutes compete against each other to some extent for a chunk of the total NIH budget. And so they're always looking to get their patient base to be the most injured in some way or another um, and the most strenuously lobbying Congress and so forth. So the National Institute of Communicative Deafness Communicative Disorders ran a survey in which they surveyed, they asked questions of both blind people and deaf people. And the final question more or less was, they would ask blind people if, given the possibility of regaining their sight but losing their hearing, would they make that trade-off? And remarkably, the answer turned out to be almost 100% no. Now you might say, well, because I'll take what I have, I don't wanna go somewhere I'm not, I don't know what that is, I'll just, I've learned to be blind, so I'll be blind. But it turned out that when the same question, but in reverse, was asked of people who were deaf, that is, if you could get your hearing back, would you give up your sight? Their answer was yes, almost, again, 100%, because deafness, they felt, cut them off from human contact. They were not part of the social fabric. They couldn't partake in conversations normally. They couldn't go to a party and be part of things, whereas blindness for them was, although a disability, but one that you could work around. But deafness cuts you off. I think we see this regularly, and we don't take enough note of it in the geriatric population, whereas you lose hearing, the major complaint of older people is they no longer feel a part of things. They'll sit in the room with the family, but they're not in the conversation. They can't hear well enough, and so they're out of it somehow or another. And I think this notion speaks very strongly to the idea of, of being in solitary, of being separated from the, the kind of input, the social input that comes from just simple contact, but of course speech is one way and hearing and so forth and so on. But I think it's just indicative of the crucial importance of contact to the brain in general. I mean, many animals are this way, but certainly to the human brain. And, uh, and, and I think personally, we should be very careful about depriving a brain of this before we understand what it means to not have it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you mentioned this in passing, uh, that you would have to get in, go through incredible protocols to do experiments on human beings nowadays, especially the forbidden experiment. Especially. <laughs> would you even be able to go through a protocol to do experiments on people in solitary? You've got 80,000 of them there. You could, it would be great to do well, experiments that, on those people. <laughs> or would you be forbidden to do it? Is it I'm, so bad I'm, that you would be forbidden to do it? I'm really shocked to even hear you suggest this yeah. in a way. Of course, there's always the slippery slope of, gee, if this research gets interesting, then, you know, we'll slip the warden another 50 bucks and throw yeah. somebody else in solitary because yeah. we need to increase the number of uh, subjects. So that would be one reason why I think you wouldn't want to do it. And that would be an No, I don't want to do it. But, but, right. but in a way, the rhetorical point I make is that you wouldn't be allowed to do this. Uh, it, well, I, I don't think you would. I think you would have some struggle. I mean, I don't do human experiments, mm -hmm. so I don't really deal with these IRBs that are called the institutional research boards, which okay these experiments. I believe you would probably have quite a bit of trouble getting through, although I don't think you would have a problem necessarily saying we would like to have prisoners who have been in solitary confinement have a, an fMRI. Mm -hmm. um, immediately afterwards or undergo a psychological examination. In fact, you could see that this would be the appropriate thing to do, mm -hmm. not just as an examination and not just for data, but as therapy. 
that if you're going to put somebody in solitary, you owe them the therapy when you take them yeah. out. Uh, let me just ask you the question I've, I asked Josh and so forth. You've just been thrown in solitary. How would yep. you pass the time of day? Uh, so I thought about that for a while because you asked me that on the phone when we talked. And I, 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 you know, that's the problem. I thought, well, this would be really a kind of a nice break and all. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized I have the opportunity to be in solitary if I want to be. And I never take it, do I? So I don't have a plan for being in solitary, but I'm going to think about it now. <laughs> because clearly one should, one could be. I mean, not just by virtue of being in prison, but, mm -hmm. you know, it's possible in, in many aspects. Mm -hmm. I mean, ostracism, as I say, has been used by cultures for a long time, sure. and who knows sure. when, when that could even happen. So, so I don't know, really, what I would do. I mean, I think I would try mental tricks. I will say this. I do believe that one of the things we don't think about the brain enough is that it's, it, it has a very strong motor side to it. That is, activity is very important for the brain as well. Maybe more important than thinking and doing crossword puzzles and all that. Hmm. There's actually recent evidence that suggests, we should all take this into account, that physical activity has a better effect on the aging brain than doing crossword puzzles and Sudoku and things like that. Hmm. That you actually keep the brain in better shape by even minimal physical activity, walking and things like that. So there's a very strong motor, we call it, component of the brain. And I think maybe that's one of the things that people probably don't think about doing in solitary, but I think it would be very important to keep moving. Thank you so much, Stuart. Thank you, Ren. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. This episode was produced by Micah Hazel. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.